the Mac Observer's Mac Geek Gab, episode 469, for Sunday, October 6th, 2013. Good readings, folks, and welcome to the Mac Observer's Mac Geek Up, the show where we all come together every week. To learn a little something new about the Mac, we answer your questions, we solve your problems, we share your tips, and we share cool stuff found here from Durham, New Hampshire. I'm Dave Hamilton. Here in Fairfield, Connecticut, John F. Braun. Hi, John F. Braun of Fairfield, Connecticut. How's your day going so far? Uh, I got my coffee, got my water, had some uh, yogurt here. So, uh, yeah, I think I'm... Uh, as prepared as I'll ever be. Prepared as you'll ever be to uh, to infotain, right? That's what we do here. Um, okay. Yeah, no, we've got uh, we've got a good show. I, I I like you know it's always interesting pulling together the agenda and seeing what came in and seeing how it folds into different things that have happened. In fact, I have a well, I've got a little story to tell. A follow up on my daughter's laptop from a couple of weeks ago, uh, which ends very well, I shall say. Uh, we've got some uh, we've got some other things. First, I want. To talk about our first sponsor for this show, which is Smile Software. They've got a new piece of software for iOS out called PDF Pen Scan Plus. And PDF Pen Scan Plus, um, it, 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 so here's the deal. Your iPhone's got a killer camera, right? It's also got a really fast processor. You know, my first computer, the processor in my Apple IIc, John, was one megahertz. You know, the iPhone is a thousand times faster than that, right? So great camera, great processor. You take those two things and you put them in the hands of crafty developers like the folks at Smile, and they turn out an app that will use the camera to scan documents and then use the processor to perform optical character recognition and which takes the text in those documents and or takes the, the the pictures of text in those documents and turns it into actual text. But what the cool part is, there's, you know, there's OCR engines that will do this left and right. But what PDF pen scan plus does is it turns it into a PDF. And the cool part is it retains all the formatting. So if you scan a PDF of, of, you know, something that has things laid out in different spots on the pages, but most of it's text that as a scan, that file is going to be very large because it's just one big image, right? You run it through this engine that, uh, in, in which, which we call PDF pen scan plus, and it turns all the text into text, but still leaves it in all the spots because it's using, it's spitting it out as a PDF. And then, of course, you could take that PDF and you can turn it into a Word document or whatever you want by also using PDF pen for iPad. But you can I, I, I scanned something. It was a form that I had gotten. And so things were all over the place. I, I took a picture of it with my iPhone uh, with PDF pen scan plus. I pulled it in. I let it do its magic. It spit out a PDF. And then I tried to mess with that PDF on my Mac just to see what the form was. And just like any other PDF, I was able to hide. It looked the same. First of all, the PDF just looked the same. And it. I thought, well, this is still just a scan. It's still going to be a monster image. A, it wasn't a monster image. And B, I could highlight the text and copy it out or edit it because PDF pen 
both on the iPad and on uh, and on the iPhone and on my Mac lets me edit text inside a PDF so I could do it. But it it retained all of that formatting. So it was really, really cool. Uh, it's five bucks or four ninety nine in the app store. And that's for the universal app. So that works iPad or iPhone. Um, and uh, it's great stuff. It's it's actually really it's cool. And and the fact that it turns it into a like a, a PDF that that looks the same. That was the biggest thing to me is it just seamless. Uh, I like it. it. It was really, really good. So I, I was totally stoked when they uh, when they sent me a copy and said, uh, we want you to talk about it. So uh, so th- thank you to Smile for not only sponsoring us, but for making great software like this, that um, it really takes this whole PDF and scan thing or, you know, the OCR and scan thing and, and makes it usable. I've, I've seen other things do it. And and they don't spit out documents. They spit out documents that have text, usable text, but not in a not. The formatting is always lost and with this. The formatting and every time I've tried it has just been retained and uh, in a beautiful way. So check it out. PDF pen scan plus, uh, of course, at the iOS app store for four ninety nine universal. That's how it works. That's how it works. So, John, why don't you take us to uh, to Craig, and we'll see how that goes. I'll try. Okay, yes, Craig go. has a good one here. So, Craig writes, We're getting set to install Wi-Fi stations throughout our school. We'd like to arrange all our new stations so that they cover the building well without too much redundancy. Is there a Wi-Fi signal detector device you'd recommend to help us map out the coverage? I found some on Amazon, but I'm not sure which to use. So there are a number of ways to approach this problem. Um, getting a Wi-Fi detector is certainly one way to do this. Uh, I, I would not recommend it. Uh, and I've seen there are a couple of different models. So they have very basic Wi-Fi detectors. The very basic ones will just tell you that there's Wi-Fi nearby. Right. And, and perhaps the strength of it. Okay, you could do that. Uh, I, I I would see that as very tedious. Then they have some that I've seen that are a little nicer in that they'll show you the name of the nearest one um, yeah, and the signal strength. And you could do that, too. You could walk around the building and, and take one of these things and, you know, make a little map. You know, for my uh, birthday a couple of years ago, John, I don't mean it. I do mean it. Interrupt. Um, yeah, I got do. I got okay. from uh, somebody bought me at Think Geek one of those Wi-Fi detector T-shirts, which is of the first variety. It just tells you that there's a signal nearby and here and how strong it is. But uh, but yeah. Yeah. So there is that, you know. All right. So that's another way to do it. But but I also see that as, uh, you know, better because you, you'll get some. Uh, you know, some quantity to work with, you know, assuming the device shows the signal strength and the name of the one you're connected to. Um, but still, that's going to be very tedious, you know, because you probably do it on a paper map. Uh, yeah, maybe you could do it on the computer, but still. What I would do, Dave, is I would use some software that's designed to do this. And you may be wondering, does anybody make something like this? And, and what I'm going to call this operation is a site survey. That's typically what people call what you're trying to do here is you go around a location and you measure the strength of the Wi-Fi access points at various uh, intervals. And then you get a, a map that shows you how, uh, what things look like. And the one that I've used, Dave, and, and the one that I would recommend on the Mac um, is one called NetSpot. 
Um, I wrote a little piece on it a while ago. I actually did a site survey of my house. Um, and this software is smart enough. So you have to go, you have to go through some steps here, but you have to with any site survey. So one, you have to actually draw a map, um, which is what this operates off of. So, so hopefully you have a, a blueprint or you could just, you know, do some rough measurements here. You just, you just want to make sure you get the dimensions of the area, right. As far as uh, whatever units you measure, you know, maybe draw rooms. You, you can make it as, as general or specific as you want. Um, then what you do is you run this software and, uh, you make a note of where you are and then you press the button and it will register all of the Wi-Fi access points that it sees and the signal strength. And you go through this operation until you're through the entire site. And when you're done, you then have a map that will visually show you uh, for each access point, um, the area or access points, the area that it covers. That's cool. To me, that's the way to go because um, it's not always clear, especially with Wi-Fi, certain things in buildings can affect Wi-Fi. You would think that, well, let me just evenly space them out at, you know, whatever, 300 foot intervals or whatever. You know, I think but most, most uh, at least for 2.4 gig, acknowledge that it can probably go, well, 300 feet outdoors. Yeah. But uh, typically you can get a couple of hundred feet. So you could just well, lay them if, out. And to be fair, because we'll get emails if we don't say this. 2.4 can actually go a couple of miles outdoors if you have an antenna that is very directional and focuses it that way. Sure. I mean, it, it, and that's that's just how this stuff works. But but you're right, John, for an, uh, an omnidirectional antenna outdoors, 300 feet. Uh, I mean, it. listen, it depends on what you get. And we've talked about other solutions that can go further because they do some focusing. But yes, you're right. Yeah. Right. So maybe a good way to start is to lay them out at, you know, a couple of hundred foot intervals, then do the site survey and then it will show you um, if you made the right choice. Uh, things that can impact Wi-Fi, uh, metal, liquids, uh, you know, certain uh, lots of different materials. And there's no way for you to know this unless you do a site survey. So that is my recommendation. They have a couple of different uh, versions here. They've been, uh, they initially had a free version and I think that's for non-commercial. So I'm not sure how that's going to play if you're doing it for a school. Um, but they have a free, a pro and an enterprise version here. So um, cool. Very cool. Now, the other thing is you could also use your Mac and go to the, <laughs> but this is really what the software is doing. I mean, if you go to the airport menu or your Mac and you're connected to an access point, you can hold down the option key and it will give you various figures here, including the signal strength or the RSSI. You could do it that way too, but that's it. No, no. Well, <laughs> the, the NetSpot, the nice part about NetSpot is it will tell you all of the access points that it can see from that, from that particular location. Right. And, and that starts to get very interesting because you might think, Oh, well, my living room is covered by the base station here. When in fact, no, all the clients in your living room tend to grab the base station over there because of some other factor that you, you know, just didn't notice. So, yes, it's good. That's good stuff. My yeah. annual point out ones that you may not have placed, like I think you've mentioned, Dave, in the past, right. and I've seen this too, is that your neighbors may be operating um, Wi-Fi and you may want to change your, your channel assignment based on what is surrounding you. Or and, change uh, your neighbor's channel assignment. <laughs> yes that's not nice you're not supposed to do that i don't think uh i don't think so 
All right. Uh, moving along to Stephen. Uh, Stephen asks, I was just wondering what the best option is for defragmenting a hard drive. I have a 2011 Mac mini running the latest OS. OS. Is there anything in the OS that will do it? Thanks for any and all of your thoughts. Of course, Stephen. Um, so, yes, OS 10 includes an always active defragmenter, but it's very, very specialized. It only defragments. It's called the it's I forget what the name of it's hot files is is what the engine is called. And and there's some name that that includes hot file, hot file management or something. It prioritizes. And this only happens on spindle drives. I I should state right up front that if you have an SSD, stop, do not defragment that drive or do or run a defragmenter on it. It's not going to do you any good. And in fact, will do you harm. Um, But on a regular, on an old style, you know, standard spindle drive, not an SSD. Apple does have this thing called hot file management, which uh, takes all of the smaller uh, files that you use regularly and puts them on a section of the drive that is most quickly accessible and defragments them when it puts them there. So, and this is happening constantly. So yes, OS 10 does try to keep things uh, tidy. However, I've found, and for a while I thought, well, you don't need to defragment anymore. That's not entirely true. Um, you don't need to defragment if for whatever reason you are nuking and paving and starting fresh every 18 months or sooner. That's, that's my sort of, you know, benchmark there, uh, a guideline there, I should say. If you are not wiping and nuking and paving uh, every 18 months or sooner, then every 18 months or really probably every 12 months, a defrag will likely result in a perceivable speed increase for your Mac. Uh, for those of you that don't know what we're talking about, defragmenting, all the files exist uh, that exist on your hard drive uh, are scattered about. And it's possible even, likely, depending on the size of the file and how full your drive has been in the past, uh, that all the pieces of any one file are not stored together. And one of the slowest things that, that SSDs mitigate, uh, but one of the slowest things about standard hard drives is jumping from spot to spot to begin reading the data that you require. So if you have a file that's broken up into 10 sections and all 10 of those are in different spots on the drive, the speed at which your drive can read data no longer becomes the limiting factor It's the speed at which your drive can jump around from spot to spot, the seek time that really becomes the, 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 the slowdown, right? That's your bottleneck. But if you could take all 10 of those things and link them all together and put them in the same physical spot on the drive, now your drive only has to seek once effectively, and then it can read all 10 of those in a row. And that's what defragmenting does is it, it coalesces all that stuff. It brings it together and, uh, and, and makes things faster. So again, it's all, it's going to depend on your usage. If your drive gets very full often, like if you're using large audio files or moving big chunks of data on and off, that will actually cause a drive to become more fragmented because you have less uh, big chunks to put things in. If your drive gets full, you know, your the system kind of has to, you know, pick and choose or it doesn't get to pick and choose. It just has to take what it can get in terms of where it can put files. So, uh, so defragmenting can help. Um, and to answer your question, uh, no, there is nothing in the OS that will do that level of defragmenting for everything, but I've found, uh, and had good luck with and have personally used and trusted 
ProSoft's drive genius for that. Um, it is important to have a backup of your data, no matter how much you trust the defragmenting software that you're about to use, because anything could happen. But, uh, but ProSoft's Drive Genius is the one that I always go to, and it, it has never steered me wrong. I've never needed to go to my backup that I have always made beforehand anyway, and always will. So I think, I think that explains it, but Mr. Braun. No, I'm with you. I use, um, I like Drive Genius as well because they have a feature um, that I think you hinted at, Dave, but they call it Drive Pulse, and it's a monitoring facility that monitors not one, not two, but three items on the drive. Yeah. So it monitors the fragmentation status. And when you're sufficiently fragmented, it'll tell you, hey, you may want to do a defrag. Uh, it also does a verification of your preferences um, on occasion and then a volume consistency check, uh, which may be able to find problems before something like smart, which typically I've found that smart is usually not very smart. Not very smart. That's right. <laughs> yes. Yes. Actually, I'm weighing my options here because I think I mentioned one of my drives in my uh, Synology uh, reported an I.O. error. Yeah. And uh, I think they'll let me swap it out for another one. Cool. WD. I mean, it's actually under warranty. Yeah. Um, the thing is, when I first got it, the Synology reported that it remapped a bad block. And I'm like, well, OK, that's kind of cool. But then sure. it also reported an I.O. error. The thing is, in this case, if I try to run a smart operation on that drive, it never completes. Mm. That's really it's, bad. It gets stuck at 90%. It says, okay, it'll take two minutes for me to do a, a quick smart check, and it never finishes. Oh, dude, and get then, rid of it. And then when I examined the smart parameters, one of the smart parameters, I think it was unrecoverable read errors, it was greater than zero, but under the smart parameters, it was still considered okay. But on the other drive, there were none of those. Yeah, so the drive is, is to me, it's pretty clear it's failing. So even though it still runs... I think Th this I'm justified is, in swapping it out. This is the right time to swap it out. That's right. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah definitely. I mean, I've set up in mirrored mode, so pulling that drive, you know, I'm not going to lose any data. Right. Well, I'll be at greater risk if the other drive fails. So. Correct. Correct. All right. Okay. And then uh, as the article mentioned, the last thing, which yeah, I think you suggested, but the, the poor man's defrag is to back up your entire drive using something like Carbon Copy Cloner or... or yeah. Um, uh, back up your entire drive to another drive, then erase the first drive and then do a restore. Though that takes a real long time. I but think. but it's true. That will defragment a drive. D the, you know, doing a natural clone of your drive the first time. Not not if you're doing smart clones where it's just updating changed files. But, the you know, a, a true clone of your drive will defragment it um, if done with super duper carbon copy cloner or something that's doing it on a file level. That's right. Yeah, because it's just taking the files and copying them. And the OS is smart enough to say, well, if I have the ability, I'm going to keep all these contiguous. So I still maintain, though, now thinking about that, I maintain that that Drive Genius would be better because Drive Genius, not only does it make every file contiguous, it does it in a way that leaves you with the things that you would need to access more frequently in the faster portions of the drive. So I, I, I think I think it does it in an intelligent way. It knows if you're going to read file A and then file B, maybe we should put file A and B together so that you don't have a seek between them either. Whereas just copying with Carbon Copy Cloner or Super Duper, the OS doesn't do all of that. It does some of it, but not all of it. All right. We could talk about this for hours. Do you want to? Want me to get more coffee? And uh, no, Why do no, I say you want me to get more coffee? I never drink coffee, but I have tea. All right. We'll go on to Alex. Uh, uh, Axel. 
Axel writes, last Monday, I was lucky enough to pick up a new iPhone 5S. I restored it from an iPhone 4S iCloud backup. I was looking under the settings in cellular and down in the field labeled call time. It shows 52 days. I haven't owned it for a week yet. Is there any way of resetting this value? It's an AT&T phone. And he's right. In call time, it shows the current period since the current charge, since the most recent full charge, and also the lifetime of the device. And when you restore an iCloud backup, it restores that lifetime data. Um, This is a, a great example of keep looking, right? Because on this screen, if you scroll down, you start getting into... um whether apps are allowed to use cellular data and all that stuff. And you may think, Oh, that's the end scroll all the way to the bottom and you will see something that says reset statistics. And this is in general cellular inside the, uh, or not general, sorry. It's just inside cellular in iOS's settings app Uh, all the way at the bottom reset statistics. If you tap that, it will ask you, do you want to reset call statistics? And in fact, it resets the exact data that, uh, that Axel uh, is looking for here. So again, you know, don't be afraid to hunt and look all the way at the bottom iOS that this is not the only time when scrolling to the bottom reveals something very interesting um, for, uh, for those of you that want to dig so fun stuff. Moving on, Mr. Braun, unless you get something about that. No, I'm waiting. I'm waiting for my new phone. Uh, supposedly, it's uh, shipping out tomorrow, or maybe arriving tomorrow. I think it's cool. going to ship out tomorrow. Cool. Yeah, I just uh, shouldn't use it for uh, measuring uh, angles quite yet. That's right. That's right. No, but there is a fun game. You know, the new Compass in iOS 7. Actually, you can do this in iOS 7 regardless uh, of your mm-hmm. device. But if you go into the Compass app, this is, this is if, and anybody that can do this and send a screenshot in, you, you, you deserve mad props. So um, the first thing you have to do is calibrate the, uh, the Compass by rolling this little ball around or whatever. And after you finish rolling the ball around, which seems to be taking me forever, you can actually run, there's a little level app inside the um you'll you'll see the compass when it comes up but if you if you look at the bottom there's two little dots and if you swipe you get this level app and it's a it's a a multi-dimensional two-dimensional level app and the trick is if you get it to zero it turned the whole screen turns green uh if you can get a screenshot of the whole screen being green that's pretty cool because you know by the nature of taking the screenshot uh tends to send it off axis. I have been unable to do it. I was trying to do it for an article. Gamut did it for an article. So I don't know, Hmm. you know, this is, this is like one of those things. that's like a free game that you don't even know you had. (laughs) The reason I mention it is someone actually sent a, uh, uh, tweet to, uh, Mac geek gab and I saw it and, uh, did a little digging and found out. So apparently there is an issue with the iPhone five S where its uh, angle measurement uh, is off by six to eight degrees, which uh, I think most would acknowledge is unacceptable. Yes, that's right. And it's only the 5S. I tried it on the 4, and I put it on what I believe to be a flat surface, and maybe sometimes it would flicker between zero and one, which yep. to me, that's, okay, That that's that's fine. But, you know, eight degrees off? That's, uh, I mean, if you're firing missiles or something like that, I mean, that's just unacceptable. If you're firing missiles with your iPhone, I think that's kind of unacceptable. <laughs> I mean, I'm not talking. I've about- seen a picture. I've seen a picture of people using an iPad uh, to to set the angle of a rocket launcher or something. Yeah, that so, staged uh, picture in Time Magazine or whatever it was. Yeah, somebody yeah, yeah. somebody looking for a Pulitzer, right? 
uh, whatever it is, whatever, whatever that award is. I don't know. All right. Uh, you want to take us to Ken, my friend? Yes. So um, Ken says, I have a Mac mini that I need to configure, but I don't have the space in my work area for the extra peripherals. I was wondering if you knew of a way for a person to boot up a Mac mini via a MacBook Pro. Very interesting question. It's just crazy talk. What is he? Oh, no, it's not crazy talk. No. And it's actually a feature that I really like about OS 10. And um, it's well, it's one, not just for Mac Mini. What we're about to talk about, what I think you're about to talk about here, and I honestly don't know where you're going, but I, I think I do, um, is a feature available in Macs dating back, you know, probably a decade. So almost every Mac that exists can do what I think you're about to tell people tell people so how's that for a setup and of course i don't have the article up in front of me but now i do so what i rec- i would recommend for this and uh, so apple has a support article on this but there is something known as firewire target disk mode now as the name implies you need to have a firewire port but as far as i can tell well i verified this on my setup here so i have two machines here i have a uh, MacBook Pro uh, uh, early 2008, and I have a Mac Mini mid-2010. These both have FireWire, and I actually did this test with uh, FireWire 800. So here's what you do. So you first, um, so I probably power down. So in this case, he wants to boot the Mini from the MacBook Pro. So I would shut down the Mini. Yep. Uh, then connect the two machines with a FireWire cable. Uh, and again, and I think this case, you you have to use an 800 because I think the uh, Mini does not have a 400. Um, and then you boot the Mini. So you probably need a keyboard temporarily to do this. Um, and, and you hold down a T, which stands for target disk mode. And what's going to happen is then when you boot it, now if you have a screen hooked up to it as well, but again, it sounds like he's pressed for space here, but, but what's going to happen is when you boot it, um, it's going to come up in target disk mode. If you have a screen, you're actually going to see a FireWire icon, but then what's going to happen is on the MacBook Pro, if you go to the startup disk, voila, you're going to see, again, with a FireWire icon, it's going to be orange um, with a little FireWire symbol. You're going to see that as a disk that you can boot from. How cool is that? <laughs> okay. So I'm and gonna, I think that's going to, that's, so that's going to do it for him. Yeah. I'm going to step or in that here. It, that answers his question of, I, can I boot the mini from the MacBook pro? Right. Yeah. No, I don't think so. I, I, I think, um, I, I, I took this a different way. So, so what you're talking about actually is true. And even what I said about it is true that, uh, you can, um, that that you can that, that you can do that the, the target disk mode, be it uh you know Thunderbolt or, or Firewire on j- just about any Mac. Uh, but I I think when I read this question, what I heard was, can I log into my Mac Mini from my MacBook Pro and configure it in a headless way? Right. So can I can I configure my Mac, my Mac mini from my MacBook Pro without putting a monitor or peripherals or a keyboard or anything like that Mm -hmm. on it? And and in this case, it's a very different scenario. 
you do need to set it up initially so that it can get on your network. But by default, uh, a machine, you know, uh, once you, you are going to need to, you know, take the Mac mini somewhere where you can put some some uh, uh, peripherals on it and and configure it. Uh, and perhaps you might be able to do that with target disk mode, depending on the OS version, right? Because if you boot from the Mac mini as the as the external drive, if you will, like you said, then mm. then that might that might do it depending on the OS versions. It, the, the, the Mac mini and the MacBook Pro would need to be running the same need to be able to run the Mac minis uh, OS version. Yeah. Right. And in this case, it did. Yeah. yeah. I mean, what came right. up on my MacBook Pro screen was. Uh, what my mini is running. It's, it's 10, yeah. you know, 10, seven, whatever. And, you know, I logged in with my login on the mini there. So yep. no, that, uh, yeah, that would work that, that, yeah. So, so maybe there, maybe, and I'm not sure which question he was asking, but, but de- definitely what you're talking about for that initial config, if they can run the same OS, then yes, that would work. And then over time, what you want to do is you want to go in while you're doing that initial configuration, wherever you're doing it, go into system preferences, and go into sharing and turn on uh, remote management. And, mm-hmm. uh, and this will then, uh, or you can just turn on screen sharing, but remote management I find better because then it works with, with various different uh, things. So once you turn on screen sharing, then put your Mac mini where you want to put it headless, no keyboard, no mouse, no monitor, but with a network cable and a power cable and as long as you are logged into the same network with your Mac mini uh, and you've turned on remote management on the Mac, sorry, as long as you're logged into the same network with your MacBook Pro and you've turned on this remote management in the settings of system preferences, uh, or the sharing settings uh, of system preferences on the mini, you will see that mini show up in your uh, sidebar in the finder mm-hmm. in, under shared. Right. And then you can highlight it. And choose screen sharing and log in and continue to administer this machine over the network. You'll just see the, the Mac Mini's quote unquote screen in a virtual way on your on your MacBook Pro. So, yeah, may, maybe uh, I, I'm glad we both saw this differently because I think the the end solution is actually a combination of both. you got to do the initial config with target disk mode uh, and then future configs once it's yeah. up and running can be done this way. But you're correct. But again, his question was, can I boot the mini from the MacBook Pro and target this mode yeah. accomplishes yeah, that? No, but the caveats that were right. mentioned are important is that they both have to be, you know, and in my case, it, it worked because the MacBook Pro understands the OS that's on the mini. Right. Right. But I would say the preferable solution is what you brought up here, because it doesn't have any sort of reliance on the capabilities of the machine. And that right. as long as it can do screen sharing. Y- yes. Um, Yes. Then you're good. So, so I would, uh, although the question was answered, I would prefer the uh, screen sharing uh, solution. Yeah, because you don't have to take the machine offline or anything like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, yeah. I, I agree. I mean, the other I thing agree. I want to mention is that, so one, target this mode is very handy if you want to do something like this for whatever reason, or if you just want to access the hard drive in another Mac as a hard drive, because it just mounts on your desktop as any other hard drive. Right. Um, but the other thing that that I've that, that I do like about OS X is that in the past, especially when I've had to get a machine repaired, is what I could do is take the drive and sh- inside the machine that I want to be repaired, pull it out, 
put it in an enclosure and then plug it into another Mac. Yep. So it's a similar scenario is that as long as it's compatible with the hard, the OS on that is compatible with the hardware on the other machine. And that's typically how it would get by until the machine came back to be repaired. Then I would take the drive, you know, with the changes to my email and stuff like that and put it back in the machine that was repaired. And well, everything and, is. And I would take it a step further because I know you as I uh, are obsessive mm-hmm. about ensuring that you create a clone of your uh, main hard drive on a regular basis when you need to send your machine in. I don't even worry about it. I just send the machine in. I don't take the drive out. I just boot from my boot another Mac from my clone. Mm -hmm. And now I'm working from my same stuff. And then when that, that original Mac comes back, I clone back from what would have previously been the clone to the main machine. And now all my changes are there and I didn't have to take out a screwdriver or or do anything like that. And I want to talk about, taking out a screwdriver in a minute here, John. But first I want to, uh, I want to talk about our second sponsor, which is, and it's timely here, uh, is crash plan. Uh, and crash plan is, it's many things. It's software, but it's also a service when used together. You put the software on your Mac, sign up for crash plan service at crashplan.com slash MGG. And you're now able to back your Mac up to the cloud. Um, and it truly is an offsite backup. You can set up crash plan to encrypt your data with your own key so that even the, the best engineers at crash plan could not even begin to think about getting at your data. Uh, it's encrypted in transit, regardless of what you want to do, but, uh, but you can also encrypt it uh, and it's encrypted when it's stored, but you can choose to use crash plans key or your key. I always use my own key uh, because that's how I am. And uh, and then your data is just all there and it backs up incrementally after the first big backup. And if you ever need a file back, you just, again, run the crash plan software anywhere or go to the crash plan website and log in and you can pull down uh, all your files, which takes a long time or, you know, individual files. And it works quite well. So. uh so then th- this is how crash plan works. Now the crash plan software itself is actually got some features uh, that, that can stand alone. If you want to back up to a friend's machine, uh, you can do that too. And, uh, and so like, like pilot Pete and I do, we, you know, in addition to having a subscription and, and I, uh, you know, back up to crash plans stuff, I back up some other things locally. Uh, and when I say locally, I mean, in my town or in this next town over, cause Pete technically lives a town away from me. And uh, I have a Drobo over there and across the internet, I back up my stuff to Pete. He backs his stuff up to me. His drive lives here. My drive lives there. And if I ever need something in a large capacity, I can just go over to Pete. So it's multiple offsite backups uh, and is, is totally doable from just the one crash plan client. Very cool stuff. Check it out. Crashplan.com slash MGG. They will give you a free month and then depending on what you need and how much you need it uh, or how much you uh, how many computers you want to put online and all of that stuff. The prices are quite reasonable. You can do I think they start as low as two bucks a month. Uh, You can do uh, unlimited for four bucks a month and a family unlimited, which gets you, I think, up to 10 computers for like starting at like nine bucks a month. So it's pretty cheap. And uh, and as as secure as you want it to be and very, very easy to use. So check it out. Crashplan.com slash M G G. 
All right. So, John, I promised that I would talk about uh, taking out a screwdriver. And uh, and and there was actually a question from listener David that, that reminded me that it was time to talk about this. David wrote, he says, I have a mid-2010 i3 iMac that is acting funky. I'm getting an increasing number of beach balls o' death that can only be cured with a hard shutdown of note. The hard disk died and was replaced about a year ago. Three months ago, I upped the RAM to eight gigabytes. Of course, my Apple Care just expired, and I'm looking for troubleshooting tips that might lead me to a resolution. I ran disk utility, and everything came back clean. Okay, so in this case, um, I went through the, these symptoms sound eerily similar to what I went through in my with my daughter's um, MacBook Pro. It's a Core Two Duo MacBook Pro. What what uh, what year was that, John? It's the same one that that you. Uh, have is that a 2008 or 2007 oh uh, early 2008 early 2008 okay so, um, so that machine started doing the same thing beach balls of death you could only you know hard boot it i thought it was the hard drive uh which i had replaced previously for different reasons just to speed it up uh, and so i replaced it again and the problem didn't come back or the problem didn't go away then i replaced the hard drive cable Inside it, there's a little cable. It connects the motherboard to the hard drive, John, which I'm sure you've seen. And uh, and that didn't solve it, which tells me that the problem is on the motherboard. Probably something I did. Uh, it probably has to do with the little connector on the motherboard that uh, that the cable plugs into. And I probably foobarred that when I was, you know, at one point in, in the in the distant past when I was, you know, uh, swapping out the hard drive. So. I thought, well, that bus is dead. Uh, in your case, David, listener, David, uh, you could use an external drive because I tried this with my daughter's machine. I just put I took the, the hard drive out and I put it in an enclosure, an external USB enclosure and plugged it in. And the machine booted and ran fine. No hard drive inside the machine. Uh, just this one here. So I know the drive's good. I know the machine is good. It just is that one SATA bus is off limits now. Um, and without a motherboard replacement, that doesn't change. So for you with an iMac, that's a livable scenario with an external drive. It's not perfect, but you know, it, it get, it keeps the machine running without having to spend the, the fortune that it would cost to replace the motherboard with my daughter's laptop or with any laptop, having an external drive permanently tethered to the machine is not a workable scenario unless you're going to treat the machine like a desktop and never move it around, which she is not. So, uh, I went, I went down the next path, John. I don't think I told you this. I went to MCE, uh, mcetech.com and I bought, uh, what they call an OptiBay. And we've talked about this in the show before it, the, there are two buses in that machine. One is a SATA bus that, that is where the hard drive would live. And then the other is, I think just a standard old ATA bus where the DVD or the super drive lives. Mm-hmm. And the super drive still worked fine, which tells me that the bus also worked fine. So I cracked the machine open again. I took out all the screws and all the crazy stuff that you have to do to get in there. And I took out the DVD drive and this OptiBay is shaped exactly like the DVD drive, except it doesn't have a DVD mechanism in it. It has a hole in it where you can mount a SATA hard drive. So I put that SATA hard drive. I actually took an SSD, an old Runcore uh, SSD, uh, and put that inside this OptiBay and then mounted the OptiBay where the DVD drive used to be. 
And that machine runs like a total dream right now. Uh, it's so, so the Opti Bay is a SATA to PADA mm-hmm. converter. Okay. Yeah, yes. So let's you put in a, uh, or legacy ATA device. Legacy ATA. Yeah, that's right. Yep. Yep. Or no, I'm sorry. You can put a SATA device in it and then it translates that to the, the ATA bus that is used in that machine. That's right. Uh, and I think that was one of the last machines where they used an ATA bus for the optical drive. I think that's all future correct. machines use SATA for everything. So. Yep. And, nice. and technically there is some uh, to answer and I'll say hello to everybody in the chat room uh, at MacGeekGab.com slash stream. And to answer Chris Humphrey's question in the chat room, would that create a bottleneck on the bus? Because that bus that the, the, the super drive was on is theoretically much slower uh, than the bus that the hard drive would be on. So yes, I'm sure there is a theoretical bottleneck on that bus. However, uh, I have seen no evidence of this machine being anything but way faster than it ever was previously because we're running an SSD, right? It, it, and it, and I, I still maintain that, and, and this machine is, is living proof of this, uh, this concept that, Far more important, just like we talked about in the defrag conversation uh, a couple minutes ago, mm-hmm. far more important than the transfer speed is that seek t- speed, you know, getting the drive ready to read the next piece of data. And of course, on an SSD, that speed r- rapidly approaches zero be- just because of the, the way SSDs work. So, yeah, no, my daughter says the machine's never been faster. It It's like a brand new machine for her. It's only got two gigs of RAM in it. And it, you know, she she doesn't notice that when she's you know paging out or anything like that, it just oh, really, yeah, yeah, yeah. Bump that up a little bit. Maybe hmm. what's that? No, that seems kind of light to me. Two I think yeah, maybe, maybe it's got three gigs. I don't know. It, I think that that oh. machine maxed out at three, right? Um, if I, if I remember correctly, Cause mine is uh, mine goes up to six. No, this machine will go up to six. You can put a two and a four in it. If it's the early 2008. Yep. So yeah, then future machines, I think you could go up to eight. Yeah. Yeah. So this was a weird one. Officially, Apple only said that it supported four, but you could put in a four and a two and it would. uh, Okay. Yeah. Maybe, maybe she's got, maybe she's got four in it. I know it's not maxed out at six, but, um, but it doesn't matter. She's, I mean, she's running fine and, and notices no slowdowns. What, you know, whatsoever. Uh, So it it really, and the Opti Bay, I mean, it, there was a little bit of risk of throwing good money after bad here, right? Because the OptiBay, I think with shipping, you know, an empty OptiBay, I already had the drive. Uh, the empty OptiBay was uh, maybe 50 bucks, 45 bucks US oh. with it being shipped. You know, I mean, it wasn't it wasn't overly expensive, but it was like, OK, I realize I might be investing 50 bucks in nothing here, you know, but uh, but I had to know. And and uh, and it works great. It boots from that drive. No problem. Uh, and it just happily works so uh yeah so there you go cool cool yeah and i've changed my practice so so i'll admit i was not doing uh regular clones but i changed that recently because i have a number of two and a half inch drives uh from various sources that i wasn't using for anything so i ordered a couple of uh so uh, our friends at uh, owc slash max sales have a very inexpensive, uh, like around $20 uh, USB enclosure. And so I basically put that on my machine. As you, as you said, Dave, you know, this machine is always here. The mini's always here. So I have this USB drive always plugged in, and then I set up Carbon Copy Cloner 
to do a once a week uh, full backup, you know, including what I like about it is, you know, carbon copy cloner, you know, keeps up with the times here is that it, it uh, it'll say first mount the drive, then do this operation, then dismount it, then put the machine to sleep. <laughs> it's oh, just so yeah. Cool how it can, because normally I leave the machine asleep. Oh, dude, this reminds me. A carbon copy cloner will wake up the machine, start the backup, and then dismount the. So right. it'll wake up the machine, mount the drive, do the backup. You know, doing a delta now. Yeah, you know, yeah, After yeah, the yeah. initial one, and then put it back to dismount the drive and put the machine back to sleep. <laughs> That's awesome. That's awesome. That's what it should do. That's great. Yeah. Uh, so this totally reminds me, and I know we're going on tangent road here, but that's okay. Um, we got to get a sign for that, like a road sign that says tangent road, tangent way, tangent drive, tangent loop. I don't know, whatever. Uh, tangent, tangent loop. That would be good. A piece of software came out this week. It's version two of a piece of software we've talked about before, but it radically has changed so much so that it's almost like a different piece of software and it's fruit juice. Okay. Uh, it's available in the Mac app store. And the purpose of fruit juice is to help you maintain your battery. And it, the new version totally gets it right. So we've always said that what you need to do is keep the electrons flowing, right? You're either charging your battery or discharging it. The worst thing for your battery in your Mac laptop is to have it or any laptop is to have it sitting on charge while you're using it all the time. This will kill the effective life of your battery, the, the effective charge life of your battery. Uh, so fruit juice actually watches what you do and it works on older batteries or newer batteries. It, and it, it's it's built to know how to deal with older ones versus newer ones and all that stuff, of course. Right. So when you install fruit juice the first time, it asked you pretty please. Can we uh, have uh, access to to launch at startup so that we're always running? And because it's in the Mac app store, you have to give it that access. It's, it won't you, you can't do that automatically. Uh, but once you do that, it just runs and it watches over the course of the last seven days that you used your machine. So if you went three days with it off uh, or, or not w waking up, it doesn't matter. It just watches your last seven days of use. And then it knows that you should be using your battery at least. I think the number is 20 percent, but whatever it is, it works um, it, that you should be just running on your battery at least 20 percent of the time, if not more. And so based on your usage, it comes up with for that particular day how much time you should spend on your battery. And it tells you that and it tells you when you. Uh, when you've gotten, when you've hit that point and say, okay, now you can charge whenever you want. Or if you're on charge, it'll say, Hey, Hey, hey you, you know, you, you're hurting yourself by doing this. Just a reminder when you can unplug and let your battery drain some before you live with it like this. So it, yes, it's a little bit like a battery nanny. Uh, but I think there are many of us, myself included that, uh, that can benefit from a battery nanny. To, truth be told, because we forget, it's easy to forget. It's easy to just leave the stupid thing plugged in all the time. And then suddenly, you know, within six months, you wind up with a battery that, you know, the charge lasts 30 minutes and it's because you left it on charge all the time. So, uh, so it is at fruitjuiceapp.com or you can find it in the app, the Mac app store. So it's, uh, it's good stuff. I, I like it. It's, uh, 
I've, I've been I've been beta testing it for a while and it, it it really it's handy, you know, and you can set the alerts and the, you know, what level of pestering you wanted to give you and all that stuff. And it um, I highly recommend it. I think it's like uh, well, I should look at the link, but I think it's 10 bucks. I mean, it's just not, you know, it's not going to set you back. It's certainly less than a battery. Yeah, it's nine ninety nine in the Mac, U.S. in the Mac App Store. So, yeah, yeah, it's good. It's yeah, I was good. running it for a while. Yeah, but you were yeah, running the old version. It, the new one, the whole paradigm has shifted. The old one was about conditioning and maintaining your battery that way. This one, it mm-hmm. really, the, it, it does away with almost all of that. And the main focus is this nanny mode. And, and I, you know, I, I know I'm using a, a term that's usually seen as a negative, but to me, it's a positive. It's nice to have something remind you, hey, 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 don't forget. So I highly yeah. recommend you check out the new version, John. Not that you need it, because I think you use your laptop pretty, your battery well, pretty I, responsibly. Well, actually, so, so for me, actually, what kind of acts as the nanny is growl or a hardware growler. Okay. Well, between the, between that, so it will actually step in at some point saying, whoa, whoa, your battery's, uh, you're getting close to dying here. Oh, um, well, you may want to plug in. Close to dying is different than make sure you use your battery enough. Right. Two very different things. Yeah. Oh, no, I understand. Yeah, okay. No, but yeah, I do yeah. that is that. Yeah, no, it just it warns me. Well, the OS will do it, but this yeah. does too. And then, yeah. you know, I'll plug in and make sure I'm plugged in. And when when I get to maximum, I'll unplug. Right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. and this basically, you know, helps. Uh, well, it, well, this reminds me. It, it, it helps enforce that behavior. Whereas or, growl reminds you to plug in. Fruit juice reminds you to unplug. That, yes. that that that's really the best way I can I can say it. Yeah. Yeah. That's absolutely. No, it. I see. Yeah. And actually, what happens is, yeah. Well, when the machine gets to 100, percent it will also tell me that. So okay. in effect, it's. Yeah, yeah, in, yeah. In my mind, I'm like, oh, I'm at 100. percent That means I should now unplug. Right. 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 As quickly as possible. Yep. So, uh, yeah. Yeah. But no, good stuff. I, yeah, it's good. Believe, uh, yeah. Well, uh, you you've hung with the uh, the author uh, Jeff Lynch, well. who who wrote it. I I I still think that that there was a Mac Geek Cab discussion years and years ago that spurred our initial discussion on this. I think spurred him off down this path. But yeah, Jeff lives uh, not too far away from me over in over in Maine. Uh, yeah, somewhere. No, he yep. was he was in my hood for a while. Yeah, we uh, yeah. Uh, speaking of meeting up with developers, I'm let's see, we're still on tangent way. I am. Uh, I don't know when we're going to do this show next weekend because next Sunday and Saturday and Friday and Thursday night, I am going to be in uh, Montreal for the Singleton Conference, which is uh, a gathering of OS 10 and iOS and Apple developers and and you know those of us that like to hang out with developers. I, I think is is probably the right way to say it. Um, it's a it's a conference put on by I'm going to miss the third person guy English Scott Morrison and I can't remember the third person that uh, that started this but uh, but I'm very much looking forward to it it's good it it it, it you know I, here's the thing I love MacWorld Expo right it's great um, but pretty much the people that we hang out with there are the people that we always hang out with there or at least that's true for me so I like branching out and going to these other conferences where. Uh, I run into people that wouldn't have a reason to, you know, a lot of developers, unless they have a product and want to show it off at the, at the, um, on the expo floor, they have no reason to go to a Macworld expo. And so you, you tend to miss this whole section of people and also small conferences have their own benefits. And this one is quite small. So you really get some, some quality time with folks. So, uh, so I'm, I'm looking forward to, to Singleton this weekend. Plus I've never been to Montreal. So that should, uh, that should be fun. And on Tuesday night, I'm speaking in Princeton, New Jersey, Tuesday the 8th. 
So if anybody is in Princeton, come to the P mug meeting and we can see it there. But uh, you, you, uh, you've never, I mean, this is only the third year of Singleton. I'm, I, I don't think you've gone in previous years, right, John? No. Okay. Well, I am going to pitch the concept of going to Mac tech to you next month. Mac tech is the, I think this, uh, I want to say the sixth, seventh and eighth of November. It's also the fifth. There's, there's some full day things happening. Um, Mac tech. I didn't go last year. Uh, I have gone in previous years and it is truly one of my favorite conferences. And the reason is because of its size, it's small, you know, several hundred people. But the cool part is, is you spend all day and night together. Everything is planned. Breakfast is planned. Lunch is planned. Dinner is planned and evening activities are planned. So, and then of course it, in between, you know, eating and, and socializing, there are sessions and there's usually, I think when I went in the past, there's two tracks, there's a developer track and then a sort of a, um, a technical uh, track, like an admin type track. And I actually learned quite a bit in both of those. And it's good to just, I, I like for the same reason to go into WWDC and going to the sessions there. I like to steep myself in things like iOS development sessions. I learn a lot, even though I don't do uh, a great deal of iOS or, or uh, Objective-C development myself, it, it's really handy to be steeped in, in, in and around people that do it uh, all day long and hear them speak because they're really smart people. And you learn a lot, whether you, intentionally and unintentionally. But, um, but again, mm-hmm. you know, this small conference kind of thing, uh, the social time is just as good uh, as mm-hmm. the, just as valuable, I should say, as the, as the, 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 you know, as the, the, the quote unquote learning time and, and, and Neil Tickton who puts uh, the conference together, he and his staff do some great things. They um, like, like two years ago, we did an, one of the evening events was a, a backlot tour of, of uh, universal studios. And it, I mean, it was cool to do, but it was also cool to do with, you know, a, a tram full of Mac or Apple geeks. Right. And, and it, it just provides for so much. I mean, there's, there's relationships that I have now that I, that are, I can definitively say this relationship started at Mac tech. And now, you know, this person and I either work together or do a lot together. And it, it's, um, it's good. So anybody out there, not just, I, I know I'm making this pitch to you. I started making this pitch to you, John, but since I'm doing it in a, our public forum here, uh, it, it does apply to anybody. It's a good thing. And um, yeah, I think actually, I think oh, I'll have to find it. I'll put it in the show notes. I think we've got a link that will save you like a hundred bucks if you sign up before the end of October, but that that's not my reason for, for doing this. I just, I, I hope that I can make my schedule work to go because I was really bummed not to make it last year. So it is good. It is well, good. During that time period, I'm hopefully I haven't heard back from them. Yes. Um, but there's another event occurring right about that time. So Uh-oh. I think I may be attending that. Well, it's called Engadget Expand. Okay. And what's that? That's occurring. Uh, Engadget Expand. Yeah. At first I was like, what is that? Because, uh, <laughs> well, I got an invite uh, or a, a notification. And then they also, you know, of course I went for the, uh, the press uh, thing. Yep. Um, Expand, experience the future of technology. Engadget Expand was designed from the ground up for technology fans. The biannual event gives tech enthusiasts the unique opportunity to hear from favorite consumer electronic luminaries on stage, talk directly with Engadget, and get their hands on some of the latest and greatest new devices. Cool. So that, 
that sounds kind of fun. Cool. That's, uh, that's here. That's uh, actually at um, yeah, at the Javits Center, which of course is uh, an easy train ride for me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The train's not broken. So I can't convince <laughs> you to go to. I can't convince you to go to Mac Tech. Well, well, it kind of overlaps. Maybe I could do both. What what we'll, what we'll day talk. is the what day is the Engadget one? Well, theirs is the seventh, eighth, and ninth. Oh yeah, that definitely yeah 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 yeah. I mean, you could fly back on the eighth and and hit the Engadget thing on the ninth. In fact, just fly back to New York, stay over in New York on the the night of the eighth, and attend the Engadget thing on the ninth, and then come home. Yeah, we'll talk. Yeah, yeah. So there's that one. What else is coming up uh, on the on the twelfth? Uh, CES unveiled. Uh, that's again in uh, Manhattan. And I got a confirmation on that. So that's, that's on Tuesday, November 12th. And then uh, speaking of photos, uh, were we speaking of photos? Uh, we are now. We uh, though there was actually just uh, so, some of my buddies did a photo walk in uh, Princeton, I believe. Um, but yeah, Photo Plus Expo for those that uh, are into photography, which uh, I am. Uh, they're having their event uh, October 23rd, uh, Wednesday the 23rd through uh, Saturday the 26th. Um, and if you act now, uh, you can get, a but, but almost anybody can get a free exhibits pass and they also have uh, conference sessions. You can learn how to take good pictures and all that stuff. And, uh, yeah. So that's what I, I like to go cool. through every year. That's cool. That's good. That's good. All right. Uh, you know, John, I, maybe to put us back on track, I will, uh, well, you know, <laughs> what's that? well, it, I, th- there was, there was a question that you had for me. Um, and, and then I was, and, and we didn't get to it last week because, you know, we never were able to get to everything partially because of, you know, the tangential road here. But, um, Leon had the same question, which reminded me, he said, uh, he said a few episodes back, you and John were talking about why it was not such a good idea to use your own ISP, your own internet providers, email option. And Leon says, I agree. I understand. You made mention to something about getting your own mail domain so you never, well, almost never have to worry about changing your email address if you switch uh, internet providers down the road. So the question is, how do you do that? And is there any article on TMO that you can point to that does step by step? Uh, no, I haven't written that article for TMO. I'm sure articles elsewhere exist. I, I didn't find one, but, uh, you know, I, I'm I'm certain they exist. But we can certainly talk about this in a general sense and and uh and so the the general sense is get yourself your own domain first right and then assign a mail prov- get yourself your own mail provider and and I'll t- and we'll talk a little bit more specifically about this but just just so we can paint the picture here John right uh get yourself your own domain register a domain then all right so that's step one and but i don't want to i don't want to talk specifically yet i just i want to paint the picture and then we'll go and then we'll come back does that sound okay okay but just uh, you this is one piece of it and some people may provide all the pieces some may just provide one absolutely correct yeah i want to talk about the separate pieces and then you're right you you can probably do one-stop shopping here right uh so yeah you want to get your own domain and then you want to then you have to get your own or or hire or or lease space on or somehow get a mail server that will accept mail for you at your domain. So you need to get a domain and then you some, need to somehow link that to a mail server. And then um, depending on what type of mail server you get, you also need a place to collect and send your mail to and from. 
Uh, again, you can do all of this with one-stop shopping, or you can do it separately. Um, the quickest way, and I know a lot of people love this company, and a lot of people hate this company, especially their CEO and his his antics. But GoDaddy makes this really easy. Okay, uh, they're not sponsoring this segment of the show. They have sponsored this show in the past, and I'm actually fine with it. I use GoDaddy. Uh, I tend, and this this may be a character flaw of my own. I tend not to make purchasing decisions. Uh, with politics in mind, I just if it's the right thing, I just go ahead and buy it. Now, again, maybe yeah. maybe maybe I'm a flawed man for that. And some don't like their ads either. I listen. I don't whatever. think that's a big secret. No, of course not. Well, and some don't like that, that Bob Parsons goes out and shoots elephants. I, I don't like. Yeah. That. I, I mean, it, 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 taking at face value, I don't like that either. But I they dug into provide it. domain name services and, in addition to yeah, and they also provide um, they also provide for. Um, uh, an email forwarding service uh, as part of the domain uh, purchase, right? The domain registration, which you have to do every year anyway. Uh, and then I think you can get some level and, it, and, and you got to look into the plans, but I think, I think you get some level of even email hosting with them for free with your domain. And then of course you can pay for more. They, they offer all kinds of different hosting options. So you definitely can get a hundred percent of this through uh, GoDaddy. But what I would recommend is register your domain with GoDaddy and then have them forward your email. So have them be your email uh, incoming email gateway. I'll say you don't want them to be your, you don't necessarily need them to be your server. You could use Gmail as the place where you manage your email account what you want is GoDaddy to forward email that comes into you at your domain over to your Gmail account. And then on your Gmail account, you set up your message as a forwarding address and you'll be able to send mail from that address there. And no one, unless they dig into your mail headers, which is no big deal, but no one really would see you as using Gmail or they wouldn't certainly wouldn't get mail from you at gmail.com. They get email from you at yourdomain.com uh and then that works uh that works totally fine and uh and it's actually very easy i know it sounds complex but really you know what i'm describing here is two steps right john you go to you go to godaddy you sign up for a domain you set up email forwarding to your gmail account and you're done and now no matter what your internet provider is, if you have to move and you have to move from say time Warner to Comcast, it doesn't matter. You could even forward uh, your email to your time Warner or your Comcast account and then you just change it. And that's that. But this way you're owning your own domain and you never have to worry about your ISP being the, 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 the single point of failure or, or putting mm -hmm. the shackles on you. So, yeah, and I'm right. uh, so I guess, and and just to answer a question in the chat room, but then let, yeah, let's go back and forth on. Well, this. that's I think that was my question as well. Is underneath the covers, yes. Um, would I connect to you know imap dot dot com? No, it to pick in, up my in, mail. That's a great saying. I register johnfbrown.com sure. and uh, I haven't. Maybe I should. Maybe you should. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> before somebody quick, before somebody else does. No. So in 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 the scenario I just painted, you go to this is a great yeah because now we're, we're real world. You go to G, you go to GoDaddy and you register johnfbrown.com. Easy, right? And if you go to you know you can find coupons out there on the web. You can probably get that for like two bucks for the first year, and then you forward 
all mail that comes into John F. Braun.com to your uh, personal Gmail account. That's it. That's that, Now you're done with GoDaddy, uh, except you pay them next year, but otherwise you're done. Then you go into your mail client and you tell it to check for mail at your Gmail account. And that's that. And that's that. And you're good to go. Uh, does that make sense? Okay. Yeah. I think, that, well, well, I, I, I already do that in that I do have Gmail already pick up my, uh, I, I'm already using right. Gmail as the conduit for uh, consolidating. You, but you're just forwarding your ISP's email and your MacObserver.com email, I think, to your Gmail Correct. account. Right. Okay. Yeah. So you're already doing it. Yeah. You, but you just don't do it with a domain <clears throat> with a domain you own. And and if you ever needed or wanted to move away from your optimum online, mm. that would be there. There is a pain point there for you because you have people sending you email at your opt online address. Mm-hmm. And that's that. Now, somebody in the chat room says, uh, Furby says, why not just sign up for Gmail if email is all you ever need? And that's true. You certainly could Hmm. do that, right? Because Gmail is not dependent on your ISP. But Gmail is dependent on Google still continuing to deliver you email in the way that you want it. Now, they don't, you know, there's no uh, law that says that they have to continue providing Gmail at all, though I think they will. Uh, and but there's also no law that says they, they have to continue providing Gmail to you in the same capacity and with the same feature set that it has today. So that's, you know, if, if they decide that, you know, they want to continue to change their way, they they implement IMAP, which is already kind of broken, um, then that may get to a point where you're not happy with it. But now everybody in the world knows you as whatever, you know, John at John Braun at email at gmail.com. And you're left with the same problem. Whereas if you had your own domain pointing to Gmail and you stopped liking the way that Gmail was allowing you to manage your mail, let's say Gmail starts putting ads in your email, right? Just, you know, every fourth email now is an ad and you decide you don't like that. Well, with the scenario I painted, where you're using your own domain name, you can repoint that to anywhere you like, and you can walk away from Gmail with a moment's notice. But if you're using, you know, John at gmail.com or whatever you address you'd want to use, you can't walk away at a moment's notice. So, so this is, this is my pitch to you. And it's, uh, it's actually not that complex. Although it seems like I'm getting a lot of, uh, a lot of flack in the chat room for it being overly complex, but Hey, you know, the, pri- oh, the price of freedom. Uh, as as suggested, I think you may, may maybe whip up a quick article. I can do that. Some pretty pictures or there something like that. Yeah, yeah. Showing the servers and the, yeah, 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 yeah. I I grokked pretty much the the steps that you you so well. I've been through it with Gmail, right? Re- re- doing redirection with them. So uh, yep. So it makes sense to me. But that that could be a point of confusion. Yes. Yes. It's like, am I talking to Gmail or am I talking to? My domain and it's like well yes right well no actually you're really not talking to your domain you're talking to or your or, yeah. or or a mail server is uh, gmail is talking to a mail server that's right that yeah. is acting on your uh, that, that is acting on behalf of your domain that's right that's right and and you know the, the 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 picture i painted here starts you with godaddy but if for whatever reason you decide you don't want to continue working with GoDaddy, the domain is yours. You can move it to any other domain name registrar out there. 
And, uh, you know, maybe you find one that does something a little differently that, that you like better. It's still your domain to move around as are all the email addresses associated with it. And that's the, that's, that's the point that I'm trying to make here is once you own the domain, as long as you keep owning the domain, which means keep paying for the registration every year, it's yours. Mm-hmm. So it's quite easy. Yeah. And it kind of gets hilarious sometimes when people forget to renew their domains and someone else steps in and <laughs> buys it. <laughs> you never seen that before? Oh no, I've seen that. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It happened with, um, with, with wedge, with uh, webintosh.com, which was the first name of Mac observer. When we bought Mac observer, uh, from oh, Dan Hughes. I remember this. Yeah. yeah this is an interesting time. story. Yeah. Uh, and I'll tell it quickly. But we seem to be on tangential roads. So um, when we 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 started Mac Observer, but it it did not rise up out of nowhere. We actually bought an existing website uh, called Webintosh.com from a guy named Dan Hughes, and uh, and it was the first business I'd ever bought or sold. I had no idea what I was doing. But as we were going through what I now know to be the process of what's called due diligence, i.e figuring out if what we're buying is what we think we're buying and all that stuff. We realized that Dan didn't own the domain name of webintosh.com. It was owned by some other guy. And so it was like, what's this, you know? And he said, Oh yeah. When I needed to register the domain, I didn't have a credit card. He was young. He said, so my friend, whatever bill did. And uh, I was like, okay, so it's your domain, but bill registered it because he had a credit card. So bill will transfer that to us when, when we complete this purchase from you. And he was like, no, no, Bill's not going to transfer the domain to you. And we're like, what? Well, what are you selling us again? You know, slow, hold the, hold the phone, you know, what's going on. And, uh, and so uh, we went through all this and thankfully this was back in a time when um, if you knew, if you wanted to become the technical or administrative contract contact on a domain domains were all registered through network solutions nowhere else uh Mm -hmm. if you wanted to become the the technical contact the process was you would send an email in uh saying or you would go to the i think it was a web form and you would say i want to make you know say you know uh, dave hamilton at dave.com or whatever my email was at the time i want to make him the technical contact and then they would send an email to the old technical contact as well as the old administrative contact. And one of those people would need to reply to that email. And that was the security that was in place, right? To uh, people aren't going to like me for this, but it's okay. Uh, That was the security that was in place to make sure that, that you didn't, uh, you know, steal a domain name out from, from under somebody. So, um, so if you knew if theoretically, if you knew the format of what that response email would have to look like, uh, in theory, you might be able to set a um, you, you might be able to convince the network solutions to make you say the technical contact. Uh, even with that in mind, we knew that we needed to make a different uh, we needed to call the site something different. So we came up with Mac Observer and, and that was that. But perhaps because of this potential loophole, Webintosh pointed to us for years um, and really we only needed it for a couple of months, but it pointed to us for years until it finally expired and I thought as a Christmas present that year, I would buy webintosh.com and give it to Brian because he was the one that had written for Webintosh and all that. So I tried and tried and tried to buy it when it expired, but, um, but it, it, I, I couldn't because those, har- those domain harvesters that you mentioned, I mean, they're, they're like, they've got automated systems that are Johnny on the spot. And when a domain, um, 
when a domain expires, it just, that's it gone. You know, they, they snatch it right up. Uh, so, so there you go. That's that. There, that's right. So, so I wasn't able to get webintosh.com and I think it's, I think somebody else is like publishing something there now. I don't know. Maybe. Yeah. Yeah. I ran into a, uh, I had, I had a similar situation at a company I used to work for. Um, they were going to release a product and, uh, one of the uh, employees decided to register that domain. Yeah. Personally. Yeah. Um, yeah, that didn't go over too well. They, they, they actually uh, didn't keep their job for too much longer because their, their scenario was they were going <laughs> to charge the company to sell it to them. And it's like, um, yeah. Yeah. You know, you just kind of expose the existence of a product that hasn't been released yet. Right. <laughs> oh, that's bad. Yeah, that's not good. Yeah, yeah, that that, that actually could have gotten that person in uh, in big trouble. So, uh. yes. All right. Um, get a good lawyer. That's what you got to do. Okay. I think you got to make sure you have rights to to a name is is important. Correct. I think that's. I think that's right. Yeah. Well, that's interesting, right? I mean, it it's changed now, but it used to be that whoever owned the name owned the name. I mean, it's and that's still true, but. But the courts, the courts are more likely to side with someone who had a trademark before the domain name was registered. Right. Right. But yeah. if you didn't. If you or I tried to register Apple.com, they'd probably say, yeah, right. It's like, right. well, I like apples. Well, no. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but like people, I mean, but it, there is also, I mean, there's, a, there's, listen, there's always an opportunity with capitalism, right? If, if you registered Apple.com, Apple needs to to sue you to get that. And there's some level of expense that they will go through to do that. Right. If you would are willing to cut a deal with them for some amount of money that is less than that expense to, uh, to just sell them the domain, they may be tempted to just say, yeah, dispense with the, the, you know, formalities. Let's just give the guy money and have him give the domain and then we're done. So there's still an opportunity, you know, it's just how it works. What are we talking about here? Where did we go with this? How did this show get off the rails? I'm sure it's my fault. Hey, I have a tip. Uh, it's a good tip, too, uh, for people using iPhone 5S's. So hopefully you in the next couple of days, John. Uh, Phil wrote us a tip, and, and I think simultaneously somebody, it may have been Phil, sent it into TMO and we wrote it up there, too. But uh, with Touch ID, if you go on your iPhone 5S, Touch ID is, of course, the uh, fingerprint thing. And, uh, and I've gotten pretty good with it to where, you know, you kind of have to alter the way you interact with the phone. Um, you know, you, you, I tap the home button and then, and then leave my finger gradually resting there as it, as it unlocks it and, and comes up. But now I don't think about it anymore. However, if you go in to, um, privacy, actually, I guess it's not in privacy. It's in settings, um, general passcode and fingerprint, uh, and it's and it's good that it's not in privacy because this is a convenience feature, not a security feature, and it's important to remember that. And then you'll use it differently. Uh, but if you go into uh, settings, general passcode and fingerprint, and then into the fingerprint section, if you've defined uh, a fingerprint or multiple fingerprints, and I think you can define up to five, uh, they will say fingerprint one, finger two, finger three, and they're very nondescript. And if you need to delete one so that you can re-add it or add a different one, uh, you don't know which of these is, say, your right thumb. But 
if while you're on that screen, you hover over and then just lay your right thumb on the uh, touch ID sensor, which is also your home button, it will gradually flash the right thumb or the, the finger that is your right thumb. Uh, and, uh, and that's a handy thing. And so now you know which one you can delete or which one you shouldn't. And it will do that for all of them. But in the, it gets even better in the upper right hand corner. You can hit the edit button and then you can re you can you can delete these, but you can also rename them so that when you come back in here, you know exactly which one it is without having to float your uh, your finger over the touch ID sensor. So thank you for both of these tips, Phil. It's good stuff. Good stuff. So that's good. Right, John? I think you're going to love the touch ID sensor. I can't wait to see what you play with with it. Yeah, I checked my status and uh, and uh, it still says expected ship date, 10-7-2013. Oh, and I just got a window saying, would you like to chat with a Verizon sales specialist? Yeah, let, let me ask him when. Uh, <laughs> can you speed that up? So I'll probably get a shipment notification tomorrow. Good. Very good. Cool. Cool. That's great. I think you're going to like that thing. I've been very happy with battery life on this compared to the iPhone 5. Uh, it's not been bad. So at least there's that. I don't know what they're doing differently, but at least it's something. All right. Do we have anything else here, John? Is there any, uh, any last, the last things that, uh, that you want to go through either on the agenda or not since that, that, that doesn't seem to have been a prerequisite for today. Um, well, there's one I see uh, some very quick ones here. Yeah, go ahead. Um, I did. Ha- I did have one. Uh, one of my uh, Twitter pals, uh, Bonnie. Uh, I actually helped her with with an issue. She was like, "Oh my gosh, I can't access my numbers spreadsheet spreadsheet through um, on my iPad anymore." As you may know, you can act. You can uh, through iCloud. You can uh, work on documents uh, through a browser or yeah. in the cloud. Right. 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 And she was all panicking about this, and I'm like. Um, you know what today is? Today's October 1st. You know what happened? <laughs> uh, your your oh. iCloud space got reduced to five gigs free. And then we actually have an article on TMO, I believe, talking about that. And they would actually send you warning emails, which I guess uh, uh, she, she must have missed. And that's exactly what they say will happen if you exceed the, the, the storage. So say you're using 10 gigs and then they knocked it down to the five plan which they did to me too, but I'm not using uh, that much space, but they will disable features, including accessing your documents through the cloud until you pony up uh, enough dough to hold your documents or whittle it down to a small enough uh, uh, under the five gig free. So just Uh a warning to people. um, Yeah. You got to make a decision or, or purge stuff. Uh, Well, that, that time has passed, but if you notice you can't do things you used to be able to through iCloud, um, that could be why. That's totally true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I got an email about a month ago, you know, reminding me, hey, you know, uh, you need to you need to change. You need to decide what your new plan is going to be because this 25 gig thing doesn't exist anymore. You need to pick a plan. And I think they did that intentionally so that people today wouldn't be yelling at them saying, hey, 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 you know, I uh, I didn't sign up for this. So they make you change your plan. But for people like your Twitter follower there. That's uh, that's an important, you know, if you skip that step, you're down to five gigs, which also means your iOS backups may or may not work, depending on how much storage space you're using already. Right. Uh, yeah, they, they mention um, 
Yeah, I'll find it here. Because I think it was an Apple article or other articles. But yeah, they'll disable certain things. You won't be able to access certain things if, if you exceed the, uh, the, the new allocation. Ah, very good. That's good. That's good. Nice catch. I'm, I, I'm, I'm impressed. That's good stuff. I don't know that I, yeah. I don't know that I would have thought of that as the first. Uh, as the I mean, first at first thing. I was like, you know, go to your settings, check, you know, uh, iCloud and then this setting and that setting. Cause you can see what documents are stored in the cloud. But sure. then I was like, Oh, wait a second. No, that's not it. That's not it. <laughs> or right. that may not be right. it. Right. At first I thought it was, a, it was an iCloud problem is that, you know, the document was deleted accidentally or something, but no, that, that, that wasn't it. And another quick Apple tip here. We've had a number of people. So Bill wrote in here, but very quick tip here. We've had a number of people uh, uh, complain about podcasts disappearing in iTunes 11.1. Yes. Well, they, they have released uh, 11.1.1, I believe. And one of the issues that they claim to address is uh, podcasts mysteriously disappearing. So ah, if you haven't got the good. iTunes upgrade, get that as well. And I think there's also a 10.8.5 supplemental upgrade. There is, and that fixed, oh, there was something very specific that that fixed. Drive sleep, drive sleep issues? I yes, that's, that's right, things. that's right. Because we've actually had people talk to us about that. Yeah. Yeah, it was the uh, the setting and energy saver wouldn't work. Right. Or you couldn't, uh, it, yeah, it would ignore that, that setting, which uh, could cause undesirable sleep behavior, I think. Yeah, that's right. That's right. That's right. Cool. All right. Um, my guess is that a lot of people have already uh, uh, moved on to iTunes alternatives if they were still using <laughs> iTunes. Well, I mean, listen, it's never Apple does some great things. And, I, and it, it baffles me that iTunes, well, maybe it doesn't baffle me, but iTunes, which is at the core of what they they do now. Right. I mean, you're you're. Your iPhone syncs there. I mean, you can do all this without iTunes too, which I suppose is, is telling, right? But if you're using a Mac or a Windows machine and, and managing your, your iOS life there, iTunes is the, the linchpin, right? I mean, it, you, you know, your podcast sync there, but also, you know, so does your app store purchases and your music and your videos and all of that stuff. And it's the worst piece of software Apple currently has uh, actively available on the market. And, uh, and I get it, you know, changing it, right. Rewriting it from the ground up, um, is the, probably the right move. And I'm sure they've got people working on it, but it has to be 100% compatible. So in the interim, they keep putting these band-aids on and, uh, and it's not good. It's not good. All right. What else uh, is that? Uh, I think, I think that brings us to the, uh, to the end. Yes, my friend. My only friend. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's good. I like that. Very apocalypse now. Yeah. Or very doors, right? That was the doors for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I like that. That was a good reference. That's excellent. I wish I had the end queued up like that little section just to play. But, you know, since we don't do this show, if we did, if we did post-production on this show, I would definitely have gone back and inserted that little clip right there. But, um, mm -hmm. but we don't. So uh, we'll just we'll all think about it. How's that sound? Okay. Mm -hmm. Yep. Mm -hmm. All right. Uh, if you need to email us or if you want to email us or if you just sort of maybe think you want to email us feedback at MacGeekGab.com is the address to send that stuff to feedback at MacGeekGab.com. 
I did. I said feedback at MacGeekGab.com. Yep. And if you are a premium supporter, uh, you, regardless of your level of premium support, as long as you are an active premium supporter, uh, you qualify to use our premium at MacGeekGab.com address, which is going to... Uh, which, which we prioritize in terms of answering questions. We do try to get through everything. And finally, yesterday uh, afternoon, I, I ignored my family for a while and focused on all of you. And I got through probably another 50 messages that had just piled up over the last two weeks that neither John nor I had gotten to. So, uh, so we were caught up as of yesterday. We're no longer caught up, but that's okay. That's how it works. So... 206-666-GEEK is the number all of you can call. And John Geek is? 4335. And if you're a geek, you're probably on the Twitters. And if you are, there's a way to reach a number of us. Uh, if you want to reach him, he's at Dave Hamilton. If you want to reach me, John F. Braun. If you want to talk to the podcast, it's Matt Geekab. And you want to talk to the publication or listen to the publication. You can do both. Uh, that's MacObserver at Twitter.com. That's right. Facebook.com slash MacGeekGab is yet another place that you can go. Go like us there. We like that. And also, hey, go to uh, the iTunes store, even though we, we just told you how, how bad the software is, because we all knew that. Uh, go there, and, and in that interface, you can write a, uh, a feedback for us there. We can't reply to it there because it's it's a one-way street. But it really does help help us, without question. The more the more feedback we have out there, especially the more good feedback, but please be honest, you know. Um, the feedback helps us, and that in turn, of course, helps you, because the more exposure we get, the more listeners we have. And uh, obviously, listeners are a good thing for the sustainability of the show, but they're also good because... As each new listener is yet another mind in the uh, collective, the Mac Geek Gab collective here. <laughs> and and as we've seen, you know, John and I don't always have all the answers. And sometimes when we have the answers, they're wrong. So the more minds we have listening, the more correct information we get to spread and the more ideas we get. So it's uh, it really is good for all of us. So those those that and iTunes is by far the biggest uh, the biggest funnel of users of new listeners in for us here. So your reviews mm-hmm. there directly relate to, uh, to the show growing. So we really appreciate it. And as of late, we've been hot, baby. I like it. That's good. Well, that part of that is because of you, the listeners and you know, that, that gets us in the hot listings yes. and blah, blah, blah. I mean, it's a, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. So please keep it up. We really appreciate it. We really do. I know it seems like a silly thing cause you go and write something and then you feel like, wow, nobody reads this. No, you are making it. It's crazy. As much as it's rewarding to you to email us and have us email you back, which we do, um, it's actually even it serves you even better to go and write that comment out on iTunes and have no direct response happen whatsoever. It does keep the show going. So we appreciate it. Definitely. All right. And if you want to learn about premium and all that stuff, visit MacGeekGab.com. And, and there are details there on how you can support us and um, what exactly it does for you. But, and of course, it supports us. And, um, and we it's humbling your support we really appreciate it so all right with that thank you and uh we will uh we will also offer our thanks to michael johnston of we have communicators i know he did not have time to add the chapters to mac geek 468 last week but that's an anomaly it happens every now and then and 
when we find out about it, it's usually because he just has run out of time. So we don't want to take more time to add them ourselves. We just put the show out there. So uh, so this last last week, the show didn't have chapters. Hopefully this week that that same scenario won't happen. And it usually doesn't. So. Uh, yeah, I thought that's it was Michael Johnson's bug. What's that? No, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, yeah. I, know, I started playing I it, and I'm like, yeah. "Where did the chapters menu go?" Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yes, it was funnily timed. All right. Uh, we also like to thank Cashfly, C A C H E F L Y dot com for uh, all the bandwidth that uh, that gets the show from us to you. The podcast marketplace includes BB Edit from Barebones Software and you, Jimbo from Barebones Software. Smile, of course, has PDF Pen Scan Plus, as well as PDF Pen and PDF Pen Pro and Text Expander. Gazelle.com to sell all your old iOS stuff back. And there's more stuff coming. I'm sure, I'm sure that we've got an iPad coming this month or maybe next month. Squarespace.com with MGG10 to get 10% off. All through the Backbeat Media Podcast Network. John, I've been talking like crazy for the last hour and a half. What, uh, what advice do you have for them? Hmm. Uh, don't take wooden. Oh, no, I'm sorry. <laughs> don't get caught. <laughs> Made up.